Welcome to What Were You Thinking, where I speak to politicians, opinion formers and business leaders to find out about the experiences, people and places that have inspired them. I'm Laura Round and in this episode I'm joined by Tom Tugendhat, Chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee. We discuss his time in the army, what made him want to become a politician, the situation in Hong Kong, the merger of DFID and the FCO and much more. What Were You Thinking is in partnership with the Big Tent Ideas Festival. This episode is supported by the Coalition for Global Prosperity, which is a non-partisan, not-for-profit organisation that champions Britain as a force for good across all of its international efforts, diplomacy, development, defence and trade. Since it launched in 2018, it has hosted events with leading figures within and beyond Westminster, including Boris Johnson, Theresa May, Gordon Brown and Sir David Attenborough. The Coalition believes that a smart and effective aid budget not only saves the lives of the poorest, most desperate people around the world, but is squarely in the UK's national interest. Post-Brexit, it is vital that Britain retains and uses its assets around the world to forge an even more global and outward-looking country. I should probably declare some kind of interest as I do sit on their advisory council, but if you are interested in foreign affairs, make sure to check them out because they really do organise some interesting events. But I want to start by sort of delving into sort of your early informative years, and in particular, your time in the army. And I was just wondering, what was the motivation or original inspiration that led you to join the TA? So I joined because I'd spent a long time as a journalist in the Middle East. I'd been a journalist covering... um, events in Lebanon, including the Israeli occupation of the South and um, the UN mission out there. And I joined thinking I was going to do something similar to uh, those UN soldiers who uh, I thought had done so brilliantly, Irish, Fijian, Indian, Nepali and others who had uh, had been brilliant as part of the UNIFIL mission. And as a journalist, frankly, I got bored of watching and felt that I should be doing something about it. So that's why I joined. Mm. And so you served in Iraq and Afghanistan, is that right? Yeah, I did, and uh, and a few other places as well. Right. So, I mean, I would imagine that those experiences must have, you know, have a real impact and and provide real sort of lasting impressions. Um, how do you think this time has has impacted you, and have those, you know, have those experiences influenced your your views today? Yeah, they have. And uh, look, I got into I got into politics because of soldiering, and and not just because of the foreign policy element that, of course, is drawn me towards the um, you know, Foreign Affairs Committee and things like that. But because if you really want to know about your country, if you really want to know about the people in it, then soldiering is a great place to learn. You, you know, I spent time uh, alongside people who had been brought up in care, who, had, who came from all over, literally all over the United Kingdom, uh, including somebody whose uh, grandmother ended up as the queen. So, you know, really cross range of uh, of society from uh, from prince to you know from prince to people mm. and um i mean one of the things we ask in this podcast is whether an object has had a impact on your thought process is there anything during this time that that you'd say would fall into under that yeah. description i mean i've still got i've still got um the belt that I wore in Iraq in 2003 and still uh, attached to that belt are some gold sovereigns. In fact, the leather belt is worth rather more than it might appear. Um, and uh, and I've still got it because, well, first of all, I'm not quite sure what to do with sovereigns. And secondly, 
because it's uh, it's a it's a very tangible reminder of um, of a moment when you know life was really really uncertain, um, but I was with the most extraordinary uh, group of people, and the escape map I had sewn into my uh, into my trousers is now framed and on the wall, um, and it's um, yeah I was I was very proud to be with some of the most impressive people I've ever had the privilege to know. That's a great story, and so so you kind of alluded to it already, you know, sort of how you you know that soldiering uh, sort of inspired you to to go into politics. So it sounds like it. Well, it's a bit of both, you know. I was going to ask whether it was by accident or or design, but it sounds like it might be a bit of a bit of both. Well, politics was sort of by accident, but it's but by accident on the grounds that I'd always been interested in it. If you see what I mean, I didn't yeah. I didn't aim for it. I aimed to do many other things and I'm, I'm I've been extremely lucky I you know I, I, had, I had great fun as a journalist in the Middle East uh, and found that hugely it was a fantastic place to start a career I worked in the city for a bit that was less fun <laughs> and then uh, <laughs> and then um, and then spent uh, spent time in in uniform and and that was that was a huge privilege absolutely mm. huge privilege mm. Well, it's it's quite clear from just following you in Parliament how it's how it's really had a big impact on on you and 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 your time in Parliament. You know, clearly you you came into politics with uh, with views, I guess, and 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 a sort of a mission to to change things. But you have gotten involved into in quite a lot of areas. Has your interest in those areas sort of grown organically through the process? Have you got involved and encountered these, or in other words? words I suppose did you find the agenda or did the agenda find you um it's a bit of both isn't it I mean some of the, some of the issues you 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 arrive with you know the sort of issues that motivate you into into politics and for me of course foreign affairs and defense was part of that but actually um actually leveling up which has now become a fashionable phrase uh, mm. was was one of the things too um how do we manage to you know how do how is it possible some people I know um, came from very, very difficult backgrounds, but went through the army and ended up as extremely prosperous. A few of them even made a few million, actually, um, having turned their lives around through the army. Now, I know that the army isn't for everyone. So how can we make sure that society has different routes to success, if you like, different routes uh, to opportunity um, for, for everyone? And that's that's really what dragged me into politics or what pulled me into politics. But what what I now find myself dealing with is is many other things, and you know, one of the things I've been I've been uh, looking at, and I'm absolutely passionate about, is is childcare and the care of children. And the reason I say that is because of various reasons. One, you know, uh, I've got young children myself, so that of course you know sharpens the mind. But two, and perhaps uh, most importantly, I, I'm privileged to represent an extraordinary young man called Tony Hudgel, who was very very badly abused by. Um, people who gave birth to him but was very lucky to find and be adopted by his real parents his fantastic loving family and that failure of care and also the success of care if you see what I mean because Tony reflects both sides of that story uh, is something that I think we need to do a lot more work on to make sure fewer and fewer children fall through. Mm. I guess it makes sense that you know see most politicians as you say your personal life and having kids sharpens the mind and and makes you aware of a lot of issues but this story really highlights the impact of your constituents and the issues that they they bring to your attention which is really I think that's really interesting that's that's one of the things that's quite unique to British politics I guess. I mean it's it's the truth about our system I mean it has its upsides and downsides like every system but one of the great strengths of it is 
you and only you are responsible for uh, representing those 70 odd thousand people in uh, Westminster. Now, there's nobody else who can do it. Nobody mm. else is, you know, has got that duty. Uh, it's you. And so when somebody comes to you with an issue, whether it's about, you know, Tony's parents um, pointing out the, a problem with the law, or whether it's uh, any number of other issues that may come up on tax or immigration or foreign policy or anything, that's you. And so you have to um, think hard about a number of issues that you would never normally get involved with, because normally you'd have, a, you know, in, in almost every other circumstance, you'd have an opt out. You'd have a, oh, that's not my area. I don't, I don't mm. want to do that. But because you represent these people and these people are interested in that, you have to be. Yeah. And I think that's a great strength system. I really do. And so you're now chair of a foreign affairs select committee. So clearly that takes up a huge amount of your time and uh, and, and focus and energy. And your committee has got many interesting inquiries going on at the moment. And one that sort of really caught my eye when, when it was announced is looking at how the foreign office is valued and perceived abroad. Because you've basically, you've opened up the committee to hearing perspectives from allied nations about how the FCA is viewed and, and, and valued abroad. I mean, has that ever been done before? And not that I know of. I mean, we had a fantastic session recently with um, three hugely impressive individuals. Um, we had uh, Alexander Downer, former Foreign Secretary of Australia and High Commissioner to the United Kingdom. Uh, we had Ashok Mukherjee, uh, former Indian uh, ambassador to the United Nations, and in fact, he had been uh, he had worked in the uh, Indian High Commission here in the UK as well. And we had Marie Tashaka, who, uh, as well as being a very prominent Dutch uh, MEP, um, also now is a tech uh, guru, if you like, at uh, at Stanford University. So, you know, three diverse and uh, very interesting uh, individuals who were really refreshingly critical and complimentary, by the way, uh, about uh, the way that the UK does diplomacy and offers some really interesting thoughts. And I think, you know, given that the purpose of the Foreign Office is to understand and influence our friends and allies and partners around the world, understanding how they see us is kind of fundamental. So a bit mm. of 360 degree reporting uh, struck me as a good idea. No, I think I think it's uh, it's 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 a brilliant idea. I wonder how the Foreign Office reacted to that, obviously publicly, but also <laughs> privately when they heard the news. Because it's, as you say, like it's it's probably hasn't been done before. It's a, it's a very different way of of you know being uh, held accountable for, or, but by Parliament. Well, I'm, you, you know, the Foreign Office is one of those departments that has had traditionally less interaction with um, parliamentarians than, say, you know, the Department of Work and Pensions, where people are writing the whole time to, to, to get, you know, to support constituents. It's, yeah. it, the, the reaction is that the, the connection with the, with, with the Foreign Office tends to be less, that's true. But I have to say, I found, I found the Foreign Secretary to be receptive um, to new ways of looking at things, and I found the Foreign Office to be open to, to to challenge. So, you know, I think I think uh, I've been I've been pleasantly surprised in many areas. Good. And um I mean, I, I often wonder whether we have enough MPs who are sort of engaged or really interested in in international affairs. I mean, what what's your reading of that? 
Well, I think um, I think there are many. Uh, I mean, first of all, I think there are many MPs who are interested in international affairs. I think, you know, like everybody, the pressure on your time because of you know because of what we were talking about before, because of the number of issues that people bring to you, um, it does make it tricky sometimes. I mean, you know, let's not let's not pretend that everybody can focus on everything because that would leave the whole you know that would leave the situation rather unbalanced. But the um, so it's it's you know it's not everybody who can focus as as much as I would like, obviously, on foreign affairs. But it does mean that um, but there but but everybody is interested, and it's interesting how you know we'll do a session on something, and a, a colleague will come up to me in the corridor and comment on it, you know, sometimes negatively, <laughs> and uh, and give some, some feedback, and I find that very useful. So I I you know I try and send out emails to colleagues who I know are interested in on the subject to make sure that they know what we're up to. Yeah, chip in even if they're in the committee. Yeah, of course, committees are not, you know, committees are not parliaments in their own right. All we are is a subsection of parliament, and so our job is to represent parliament, not just ourselves, and report back to parliament as well. Of course, one of the things I sort of I remembered when sort of sort of preparing for this conversation with you, Tom, is um because one one of the things about you that I I've always found very interesting and quite impressive is that you clearly have very good relationships with people across the world and like you've you've written articles with counterparts for example or foreign counterparts and you clearly have those relationships and and one of the memories that I have is sitting in a private meeting with in in Davos with David Beasley um who is a former governor of South Carolina and head of the world food program and he kept going on about this Tom he's like Tom's doing great work on X and Tom told me why and Tom this and Tom that and I just remember thinking like who the fuck is Tom and, and then it it dawned on me he's like oh my gosh you know Tom Tugendhat and I've just been really impressed about those relationships and I was just wondering like what's your reasoning behind you know building these and, and what's the secret to it well I mean the secret with David is pretty simple is that uh, is that I pay him to say nice things about me <laughs> um but uh, but for but for most of the time, it's uh, it's it's actually it's look I, I you know I like people I got into I got into soldiering and I got into politics because I like people and um, uh, I try to uh, I try to understand uh, what other people's perspective is not uh, not in order to sort of you know simply accept it but in order to 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 achieve the results that I think are necessary and you know whether it's working with my opposite number in. Germany or Canada or Australia, New Zealand, whatever, or France. And, you know, I've written joint pieces with Norbert Röttgen and, uh, and I'm you know, very close to, to many of my colleagues who chair foreign affairs committees around the world. Uh, or whether it's working with, you know, hugely impressive individuals like David, who, you know, runs a UN agency as an American mm. under the Trump administration. This is not an easy thing to do. And yeah. yet he does it with huge uh, and is, you know, he's so, he has such an impact where I'm not going to list them, but there are other agencies where, frankly, you wonder why they bother. But um, but the World Food <laughs> Programme under David is having a huge impact. Yeah. And it's and it's pretty fantastic. So, you know, whatever it is you're trying to do, you, you've got to remember, you know, even though Britain is a hugely important country, we achieve more and we achieve better when we work with others. And, and you know, whichever political party people are from or whatever background they're from, Understanding what their perspective is to try and shape it to the benefit of all, I think, is is part of the job of politicians. Mm. Let's throw in a place. You know, what what place has has an impact on on your views today? Um, I mean, yeah, especially around foreign policy. 
the, the places that I think have really marked me, and it won't surprise you to hear this, are places like Lashkagar in Helmand, where I was uh, helping mm. the governor to set up the first non-warlord administration, or Paris, where my wife is a Supreme Court judge, mm. or Washington, where I spent many, uh, many, many, uh, well, a huge amount of time with friends, uh, either on the hill or, you know, just in the bars, um, getting to understand uh, the United States. Or indeed, uh, the south of France, where, funnily enough, my uh, father-in-law um, taught me an awful lot, or still teaches me an awful lot, as the former French ambassador to Beijing. And so, you know, I've been, I've been really blessed. I've been incredibly lucky that I have been able to meet hugely interesting and hugely impressive individuals mm. who have taught me a lot. And, you know, so when I, when I talk about Hong Kong, for example, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very lucky that I've... I haven't been there very often, you know, I, I, it's not a city that I know at all well, but I'm lucky enough to have had the chance to speak to people who sat as overseas judges on the Court of Final Appeal, uh, to have spent many, many hours, in fact, days speaking to people who have interacted with the Chinese Communist Party at the highest level, uh, or indeed who, you know, through people like Chris Patton, who were part of negotiating um, the handover that we're now living with the result of today. What do you think should, you know, what's, um, I mean, it's a big question, but, you know, what is the situation with China and how do you think Britain should position itself in, in this sort of this discussion? So the, the reality is that China's making a decision at the moment to step away from the direction it was heading in over the previous sort of 20, 30 years. And I think that's a mistake, not just a mistake for us, but a mistake for China. China lifted people out of poverty over the last 30 years, not by choosing communism, but by choosing market-based reforms, joining the WTO, instituting various different levels of um, freedoms, and uh, that line that was used, you know, whether I don't care if the cat is black or white, as long as it catches mice. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're seeing the results of those open uh, policies. But those policies have turned around in the last sort of six, seven, eight years since General Secretary Xi took over and indeed a little bit before. And what we're seeing is we're seeing China effectively replacing a rules-based system, which basically means everybody is more or less on a level playing field and connected by an interlocking network of partnerships and replacing it or trying to replace it with a hub and spoke system where, where Beijing is at the center and everywhere else is in some way uh, a dependent a client, a vassal state. And this sort of, you know, this sort of between the empire and the satrap is, I think, I mean, it's a traditional uh, Chinese model. In fact, it's a traditional model for many uh, imperial powers, including our own. Um, but I think it's a model that is bound to fail and is going to do harm, not just uh, to the rest of the world, but also to China. So what I'm, what I'm trying to do is to work out how best to influence China hmm. and how best to influence uh, our partners around the world to defend the rules-based system, not, not because it is you know, an end in itself, but because it is the way to achieve the most harmonious form of peaceful prosperity and cooperation. You know, the alternative to the rule of law is the rule of force. And, and, and that's really not good for anyone. 
Yeah. And just very quickly on Huawei, because that's obviously been in the papers a lot. And the government seems to have, um, gladly in my view, um, sort of changed uh, its tune a bit on that. Um, you know, what's what's the reason that they've changed their position on Huawei? Well, you know, part of it is just look at the maths. Um, you know, when we set up the China Research Group, um, well, we tried to set it up before the election, actually, but we ended up setting it up uh, earlier this year. Um, Neil and I, Neil O'Brien and I, brought together people from across the party, from uh, you know the, the young and ambitious to the crusty and uh, <laughs> to the crusty and uh, and, and bypassed, and uh, and 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 by doing that, we were able to show um, the government that this is an issue that really does unite generations and unites colleagues, and it's yeah. not okay to be laying uh, traps for future generations and. You know, whether you think that Huawei is an immediate security threat or whether you simply think that uh, Huawei points to a direction of travel which sees a very different kind of internet um, shaping global economics over the next century, whichever you think it is, uh, or both, you know, Huawei is not the answer for the UK and actually it's not the answer for anyone else either, really. And and that's why... Um, you know, we've been pretty clear about it, but it's also why the government has begun to shift because I don't think that the government would get the vote passed now. And they know that. They're not idiots. They're, they're sensible people who are looking at the, the pressure. And, you know, that's, before you say that's, you know, the government's being defeated, well, that's the point of parliament, really, isn't it? I mean, the yeah. point of parliament is is not to obey the executive, but to uh, to help it. Yeah. So um, the government's announced a proposed merger of DFID and, and FCO. And the main thing I'd love to know from you about that is, you know, how you think this government can ensure that the new department continues uh, our sort of continued commitment to development and that it doesn't sort of get swallowed up. Sure. Look, the, the, the merger between the FCO and DFID is a, is a real moment of challenge for the government. The government's got to get this right. And getting this right does not mean simply linking two departments. It means making some real choices. And some of these choices are about what what ethos to follow. Do you do the more Whitehall-centred model of the FCO, or do you do the more uh, in-country-led model of DFID? So you get different answers according to which you do. Personally, I think the DFID model is better, but there are arguments on that. How do you manage such large budgets? Do you do you maintain the specialism, you know, the expertise of these extraordinary humanitarian professionals who we're lucky enough to have working in, in, in the British government? Or do you say that actually, no, it's diplomatically led? Well, personally, I think you, you, you maintain that level of expertise. I think this is, you know, this is a huge talent base that the UK is lucky enough to have. And I think that that's totally. something we should absolutely protect. So I think, yeah. that, you know, when you look at it, uh, you, you know, it's said in the city, there's no such thing as a merger, there's only a takeover. Well, if there is a takeover, my guess is it's going to be a different takeover of the FCO rather than the other way around. <laughs> That's really interesting. And what individual would you say has been influential influential in your life? Well, there, there are many. And uh, for various different reasons, it won't surprise you to hear. I mean, I can, I can name you uh, one of my first geography teachers who had, before he taught me, had taught uh, to the Omani army. And I think he inspired in me a, a curiosity um, that has never been extinguished on 
the, the, the Islamic world and, uh, and the Middle East, um, and a theology professor who also helped me to see uh, the world beyond my nose uh, in that way too. But, you know, there are others who help me in different ways. And, and one of them, uh, you know, one of the things I'm lucky enough to be able to do is I do a tiny, tiny little bit of investing uh, in startups in the UK. Um, I have to say that the figures involved are, are pretty pretty low um, by comparison to, to, to any serious investor. But the... But if you if you know if you're a conservative and you believe in investing in the next generation and believe in investing in Britain, then I think you should put your money where your mouth is, and so I do. Totally. And um, I have to say, I I can name you two or three. I won't because it'll be you'll you'll tell me I'm plugging businesses I'm I've invested in. But <laughs> name you I can name you two or three of these guys who have um, of these people who have started businesses. And I have to say they are inspiring because they are taking risk. They are demonstrating faith in our country, faith in our community and faith, in fact, faith in, in the world, as many of them. I won't surprise you to hear many of them are transnational businesses, even if they're, you know, first of all, uh, set up in, a, in an attic in Manchester. They, are, they, they very rapidly become uh, multinational, not in the sense of billions of pounds, but in the sense of operating around the world using programmers around the world using financial services around the world and 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 that's you know that's inspiring to see that there is a generation a properly international generation of entrepreneurs who are changing lives you know around us and often without us noticing yeah just to finish off i've got a couple of quick fire questions i'm just gonna throw at you what's your favorite book Oh, there are several. I have to say, at the moment, I'm reading the Rudetsky March, and I have to say, it's absolutely brilliant. It's slightly, uh, it's a bit bleak. It's the end of empire, but you know, it's uh, it's it's, right. it's it's quite funny. Okay, and what's who who is your favourite non-Tory politician in either history oh. or, or currently? Oh, Dan Jarvis is my favourite non-Tory. Uh, he's a great mate. Dan and I served together in combat in Afghanistan. He's an absolutely brilliant bloke, and he's in the wrong party, and he's wrong about almost everything. But he's an absolutely wonderful guy. <laughs> Brilliant, brilliant. And if you weren't an MP, Tom, what do you think, what do you reckon you'd be doing? Oh, God knows. Um, I, I'd love to say I'd have carried on soldiering, but I was getting too old and fat for that. Um, so um, <laughs> I, I don't know is, is the honest answer. But I hope I'd be working in, uh, I hope I'd be working in, in, in tech and, and looking for opportunities for people to come up with ideas and, and, and achieve them. I think that's, uh, I have to say, I still think that working with young people in tech is, is one of the most inspiring things I, I, I'm privileged enough to do. That's very cool. And the final one is, what's the best advice that you were ever given? Uh, do the right thing. It's, uh, it's, it's a piece of advice I got, you know, that, that is drilled into you at Sandhurst is there are often tough decisions in front of you. And very, very often, you know, there are different pressures on you to do X or Y. Just do the right thing and it'll come right in the end. That's a great note to, to finish on. Thank you so much, Tom. If you enjoyed this episode and are looking for more content, make sure to become a friend of The Big Tent, where you can access loads of previous events online. And please subscribe to this podcast and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcast. I would massively appreciate that. And please also spread the word. If you've got any feedback or special requests, you can contact me on Twitter. I'm at Laura Round. Thanks and goodbye. (music) 